The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. Our text this morning is John 19, verses 31 through 37. But before we look at our text, I want you to consider some of Israel's history. God delivers his people, you know the story, God delivers his people from Egyptian slavery, parting the Red Sea, he present he, he's present with his people in a in a cloud by day in a pillar of fire by night and immediately the response of the people is a song of praise and how god has triumphed gloriously the horse and the rider thrown into the sea god delivered them god provided for them god tested his people And it didn't take long for them to grumble against Moses about the bitter water at Marah. Moses took this complaint to the Lord. The Lord told Moses, throw a log in the water. And the water became sweet. All is good. God provided water and food. Bread from heaven. And this went on for 40 years. Then in Exodus chapter 17 we read about some more grumbling. The people are living in a place where there is no water. So they get mad, of course, at Moses. And Moses rightly concludes that the one that they're ultimately mad at is the Lord. Which is a good lesson for us um, when we complain. Once again, Moses cries out to the Lord, saying, the people are mad. They're about ready to stone me. And in verse 5, the Lord says this to Moses. Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, And you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. The people were grumbling against God. They were doubting him and complaining and didn't believe that he would provide for them. And instead of God striking them dead, what happens here is that God offers himself to be struck in their place. And the result is a flow of water that gives them life. A common illustration of God in the scriptures is that he is our rock. He tells Moses, I will be on the rock of Horeb and you need to strike the rock. In other words, you need to strike me. And the result is a flow of water. Life-giving water to his thirsty people. In our text this morning, Jesus is struck. And from his side, there is a flow of blood and water. And if you think I'm getting creative and reaching a bit here, let me point out that the New Testament interprets the rock that Moses struck as Christ. This is the conclusion that Paul came to in 1 Corinthians 10 when he wrote, 
For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Wow. So our text this morning is John 19, verses 31 to 37. Uh, But before we read it, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we come to you for the refreshing water of your word. You are the fountain of life. All true blessings that refresh us have their source in you. You are our satisfaction, our life, our refreshment and joy. So please, Lord, forgive us for the times when we seek to dig our own cisterns, empty cisterns that hold no water. Forgive us and continue to give us what we need, what we need, what we enjoy in you. Lord, cleanse us, make us to walk in your ways. Fill us with your spirit. Help us to taste and see that you are good. Lord, please bless the reading and preaching and hearing and doing of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're able to stand, please stand for the reading of God's word. John 19, verses 31 to 37. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. This is God's word. You may be seated. While we read it. It was the day of preparation. And as the Passover lambs were being slaughtered, the true and ultimate lamb of God was being slaughtered for us, for all who believe, even 2,000 years later. There is a preparation for the Sabbath, a high day because it was the beginning of a holy week of sacred feasting. And the reason the Jewish leaders asked For the legs of those being crucified to be broken was to hurry things along. Hurry these deaths along so they can clean things up a bit. According to the law, if an executed man was hung 
on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. Victims of crucifixion would typically die of asphyxiation. As they grew weak, they no longer would be able to push up from their feet in order to fill their lungs with air, and so they'd suffocate. It was a form of execution that was designed to be long and torturous, even going on for days. But if they had a need to get it over with, to bring about a quick death, they'd break the shin bones so they couldn't push up and fill their lungs and they'd suffocate. So this wasn't an act of mercy on the part of the Jewish leaders, but just another hypocrisy, really, as they didn't want to defile their their holy land. Jesus described them, remember, as whitewashed tombs, people concerned about a nice outward appearance, yet filled with decay. And this is what we see here. Concerning this, John Calvin writes, in order to keep a strict observance of their Sabbath... They're careful to avoid outward pollution, and yet they do not consider how shocking a crime it is to take away the life of an innocent man. Think again of the providence of God, how all of the various prophecies are fulfilled, how Jesus earlier said, I thirst, and they give him sour wine as is prophesied in Psalm 69. Jesus had died, he, he died sooner than most. Many think it was because he was, he was actually, had these brutal beatings twice. So he probably lost a lot of blood. But also we know that he controlled it. He said it's finished. He gave up his spirit. And that he was, at this point, already dead, that he was already dead, enabled these other details, these other details prophesied about in God's word to be fulfilled. Details involving soldiers who must do as they are commanded. Keep that in mind. They are commanded to go and break the legs of these men who are being crucified. Roman soldiers who if they disobey a command, would likely pay with their own life. So this is serious that they're commanded to do this. They were commanded to break Jesus' legs. They broke the legs of the other men on either side of Jesus, but when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. So they had no need to break his legs. And this is important for a couple of reasons. One is that these soldiers, they are professional executioners. They know dead. They wouldn't take a chance of disobeying an order if they weren't absolutely positive that Jesus was dead. So this detail is important because... It's a very solid proof that Jesus truly died, and so he's truly resurrected. 
skeptics have this ridiculous theory that Jesus uh, passed out, swooned, that he only appeared to be dead, explaining away the resurrection that he just revived, wasn't truly raised from the dead. So the fact that these soldiers did not break his legs and then pierced his side is a very strong proof that Jesus was dead. A second reason these details are important has to do with proving that Jesus was not some phantom. He was not a spirit. He was truly man, truly human. The biology of a spear piercing his side and blood and water flowing out is evidence that he was a physical man. And we might not see the importance of this. It might seem a bit strange to imagine that he was anything but that. But in the early church, this was a big deal. They fought against a heresy known as docetism, an early form of Gnosticism, all related to Platonism. This idea that the physical is bad and evil, and the spiritual is pure and good. And so they wrongly taught that Jesus, being good, could not have truly been physical. But for the Christian faith, we know it's essential that he is a physical, true man. It's essential because if not, then his death has no meaning for us. And if his death has no meaning, then we are still guilty of sin and separated from God. Humans are the ones who sinned. And so only humans can pay the price for that sin. And if Jesus wasn't a man, then he wasn't a substitute and our sins have not been removed. But the details of Jesus' death confirm that he was truly flesh and blood, physical man who died. Also what we see is the, the sovereign control of God over these details. Two of these prophecies that are fulfilled have to do with none of his bones being broken and that he would be pierced. And these go together because the reason he was pierced, the only reason that he was pierced with a spear is because they wanted to make sure that they didn't need to break his legs. That he was dead. Psalm 34.20 says, He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. John sees Jesus as our Passover lamb. And a connection to this has to do with an interesting detail or instruction found in Exodus 12. You shall not break any of its bones. The Passover lamb shall not have any of its bones be broken. Jesus is our Passover lamb. His bones were not broken. And he was pierced. Zechariah 12.10 states, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, 
on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. And Zechariah's prophecy continues in chapter 13, saying, On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse, to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. We have not only a prophecy concerning Jesus being pierced and a resulting fountain of cleansing, but a response of mourning, mourning and dread for those who will one day see who it is that they pierce. And we see this in Revelation 1-7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. John points out two details of prophecy, two pictures of Jesus, the the Passover lamb and the one who is pierced. This is his testimony. He's an eyewitness. But God's word testifies as well. And John in his first epistle writes, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. When we read Scripture, we need to be looking for Jesus and these kinds of connections. Not not forcing things, but seeing what has to do with Jesus. Evidently, this is what Jesus did with a couple of disciples on the road to Emmaus. It says that beginning with Moses and then all the prophets, he interpreted the things concerning himself. Jesus is all over the Old Testament. He's the seed of the woman, the offspring in Genesis 3 that's going to crush the head of the serpent. He is the Passover lamb. He is our ultimate high priest atoning for our sins. He's the great prophet that Moses said would come. He's the captain of the Lord's hosts that Joshua met. He's the ultimate judge over his people. He's the kinsman redeemer, the anointed one, the son of David. He's the glorious coming king of kings. He's Job's living redeemer. He's the one who intercedes for his people. He's the great shepherd in the Psalms. He's the one acquainted with sorrow. He's the greater Jonah, three days in the place of the dead. He's Malachi's son of righteousness. The the promise of God in the beginning concerns Christ. And building and building throughout the Old Testament, we get pictures, we get types and shadows, illustrations of him. And then Jesus comes on the scene and John calls him the Word, who was with God and who is God. He's the true light, who gives light to everyone, giving people the right to become children of God. He's the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. He's the the true and greater tabernacle. The very presence of God among his people. 
And John the Baptist points at Jesus and declares, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. All of these have to do with Jesus. And when we read John's gospel, we see Jesus giving some pictures of his own. He's the bread of life. He's the light of the world. He's the door or the only entrance to God. He's the good shepherd. He's the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth, and the life, the true vine. So John intentionally gave, remember John's the one who said, there were so many other things that Jesus did, there aren't enough books to speak about it, the world isn't big enough for that many of number of books, if I were to record them all. So why does he give us this detail? What does he want us to see in the blood and the water? Blood speaks of atoning sacrifice. That he is the lamb who was slain for us. A substitute who died in our place. Blood speaks of death. Sometimes I think people wonder if if the blood is just magical. No, it speaks of death. It's not magic. It's not as if Jesus could prick his finger and produce some blood and atone for us. Blood signifies death. A slaughter. A substitute who takes the death penalty that belongs to us. Last week we also thought about how this blood is a propitiation. That when a holy God looks down upon his broken law, the blood on the mercy seat shields absorbs, averts the wrath of God, thinking of Christ ultimately. Jesus shields us. He took the wrath that we deserve. God is satisfied in Jesus. And Jesus brings us reconciliation, making us one with God. He buys us back. It's finished. It's paid in full. He has redeemed his people. So when we see the blood flowing from his side, we are reminded that covenants involve blood. Pastor Dale just spoke of the blood of the new covenant, bringing forgiveness. Blood, or covenants involve blood. We are reminded that when God made a covenant with Abraham, there was blood. Several animals cut in two and spread out apart with a path in between them. And typically it should have been the lesser of the two in the agreement. It should have been Abraham walking between those animals. Signifying that if he did not keep his agreement, this covenantal agreement, that he would pay with his life. But what do we see? Instead we see... Apparently Abraham is put into a dream and has a vision, but what he sees is a pot or a pillar of fire that we know to be the presence of God, a symbol of God walking or passing between these dead animals. In essence, God was declaring that he would make sure this covenant is kept at the cost of his own life, and he did. In the person of Jesus. God sent his son. The word became flesh. 
Jesus is truly man and truly God. The blood of bulls and goats could not do it. Man is guilty. Man must pay. And the blood speaks of Jesus paying the price for us. And that he is truly God points us to the fulfillment of what God was saying in the Abrahamic covenant. I will pay the price if this is broken. When it's broken. In the person of Jesus, the covenant is kept. He is the covenant keeper. He is sinless, perfectly obeying God's law. And in order to save us, the the covenant breakers, he's the one who's torn in two for us. He dies in our place. And this is the significance of what we just enjoyed together, the Lord's table, instituted by Jesus who said, this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Wow, God is the ultimate storyteller. Every good story comes from him. He gives us a setting in creation, various characters. There's, there's conflict in the garden, a plot with various symbols and morals and messages along the way, hinting at the resolution in an ultimate conflict, a climax where the hero is victorious. But then a twist that involves an ongoing conflict. It involves you. Here we are as those he sends into a world with with more conflict. But we know the ultimate end where Jesus will come again and be vindicated and give gifts to his people. A good story. A good story always has those, those aha moments. It's like, oh, I didn't see that before. Now that's so cool, right? They always have those moments where we put the pieces together and things become more clear. The blood that poured from his side is a reminder. It speaks of salvation and forgiveness, of a covenant-keeping God who is gracious and merciful and just. It's connected to that. So cool. Okay, but what about the water? Some have said that if you squeeze the gospel of John hard enough, out will pour water. Because John has all sorts of references to water all throughout his gospel. In chapter 2, Jesus ordered the servants to fill jars used for the Jewish rite of purification with water. Jesus was the source of joy at the wedding feast as he turned the water into wine, something that the Bible associates with gladness. The rituals of man will never truly cleanse us. And knowing our sin and our separation from God, it only leaves us in despair. But Jesus, Jesus has the power to cleanse us, to wash us, which leads to celebration and joy. In chapter 4, Jesus has a meeting with a woman at the well. She's, she's an outcast. She's an outcast because of her sin. Her history points to this person who's searching for satisfaction, continually being let down, craving for this thirst to be quenched. 
So water not only speaks of our need to be cleansed, but our, our thirst in life, our desire to be satisfied. And everyone is like this woman. Everyone is like this woman at the well. We search for satisfaction. We look to a variety of things that we think will quench that thirst or be an answer to that thirst. If only I had this, then I'd be satisfied. Then life would be good. We try to satisfy this craving in both sinful things and in good gifts of God. Remember what an idol is often. An idol sometimes, often is in and of itself something good. But the problem is we make it an ultimate thing. I must have it. This is the answer to my problems. This is my God in essence. And without it, I'm going to be miserable. So fill in the blank. Is it money? Is it comfort or a certain career or achievement? Is it a spouse? Is it family? All are good things, but they won't ultimately quench your thirst. You'll enjoy them when you get them, and you'll want more. Jesus says, in other words, Jesus says, you'll be thirsty again. You'll just be thirsty again. But if you drink of the water that I give you, if you drink from me, from my side, you'll find that I'm the answer to your thirst. I'm your only lasting satisfaction. Drink what I give you, and you'll never be thirsty again. Water means life. Jesus is the fountain of life for all who believe. In chapter 5, we see a paralyzed man lying beside the pool of Bethesda. And this water is thought to have healing powers if you get in first. But the healing flows from Jesus. He heals this man. And our ultimate healing, our ultimate hope, flows from Jesus. doesn't necessarily mean that a physical healing will come today. It could. He's able. But he's also sovereign to to be that ultimate healing for us when he decides. Water speaks of healing. And on the banks, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail. But they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water from them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food, their leaves for healing. The healing waters flow from the sanctuary, the presence of God from the side of our Savior. In chapter 7, at the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus gives a gospel invitation crying out, If anyone thirsts, Let them come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, 
Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The Holy Spirit will indwell you and help you and give you eternal life. And there's more. The blind man washing in the pool of Siloam. Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And shockingly, as Jesus hung on the cross, we hear him say, I thirst. I thirst. He, he became the curse of God for us. He became the thirsty one. The fountain, think of it, the fountain of life dried up in death. The spring of living water is cut off at the source because of the penalty that is ours. And in doing all that he came to do in accomplishing salvation for us, Jesus cried out victoriously, it is finished. And then John gives us this detail. A soldier pierced his side because he's dead. But that's not the end of the story. There's blood. And we're reminded of an atonement and forgiveness. And there's water. And we're reminded that from him, from Jesus, we're cleansed. There's purification for the stain of sin. We're justified and sanctified. It's legal and practical. Not only a bath, but a bunch of foot washings along the way. By the work of the indwelling Holy Spirit, there is an ongoing work of sanctification that conforms you to the image of Christ. That causes you to want to please God and grow in holiness. And when we do, we have a promise of his ongoing work. That when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. From his side. From his side, we're reminded the water made us pure. This is a celebration of joy, giving us satisfaction, everlasting life, ultimate healing. No more pain, no more sorrow, no more tears. Because in Him, there will be no more death. I love how Richard Phillips put it. What good news it is for Christ's people then when John tells us of the spear passing into Jesus' side as Moses' staff struck the rock of old and out of his crucified body the flow began again not just of water but of blood and water together. Out of Jesus' death by means of his blood the living water flows once more and beside this river will grow the tree of life with fruit for the healing of the nations. The details concerning Jesus' death are beautiful, uh, horrific, ugly as the crucifixion is, 
speaks in ways that reminds us of blood and water, of forgiveness and cleansing. And if you've ever wondered, I bet you have, if you ever wondered about an old hymn that we sing sometimes, that seems, the lyrics seem a bit strange and, and even gross, uh, well, the writer had this ugly and yet beautiful truth in mind. There is a fountain filled with blood. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there have I, as vile as he, washed all my sins away. Ere since by faith I saw the stream your flowing wounds supply. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Dear dying lamb, your precious blood shall never lose its power. Till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. Beautiful, isn't it? Let's pray. Oh, Father, your story is beyond human imagination, beyond human capabilities to write. You are sovereign, and the details amaze us and strengthen our faith in you. Lord, I pray that you will do this. Take this time in your word. Remind your people of these details and what they mean to us. How the blood was shed for us. For the forgiveness of sins. How the water is given for our cleansing and joy and satisfaction and healing. How your spirit is that spring of water welling up to eternal life. We praise you for the righteousness that is ours in Christ. For the ongoing work of sanctification that cleanses and forgives. And Lord, in these difficult times, help us to not lose sight of these eternal joys and priorities. That we live for you. Please bless and bring about repentance in our nation. Please use us. For the sake of the gospel. Lord we give thanks. Thank you for Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.